Pray with me this morning, would you? God, we come into your presence. We have sung those words when the night is holding on, when the darkness seems to have a grasp on our, on our hearts, sometimes on our very soul, because of the, the pain of life and the brokenness, things and people that we have lost that are precious to us. God, the, the truth of who you are, that you are good, can be hard for us to grab sometimes and to hang on to when the darkness is really dark. So would you meet us in this place today? You know your people. And there are hearts here that hurt. There are hearts here that don't hurt today. But more than likely, they will in just a matter of time. May we be people who cling desperately to you in those times of darkness, knowing that, that again, we will, we will have hope, that you will meet us where we are, and that <clears throat> you love us regardless of the condition that we find ourselves in. Oh, because you are God, and you are good, and you promise to be with us and to redeem in the challenges and the pain of life. <clears throat> so we thank you for that. And we offer ourselves to you as we continue to worship in the hearing of your word this morning. Would you meet us? Would you grow us? Would you challenge us? Would you bring comfort? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Amen. <clears throat> well, God gave me an epiphany this week. He said that you should all write me a check. <clears throat> You're laughing. Okay, it wasn't that kind of an epiphany. Aren't you, aren't you grateful? Yeah, somebody call. He's really lost at this time. My epiphany actually had to do with, with a Greek word that, to be quite honest, I, I've known this Greek word for a long, long time. And uh, it's been staring me in the face, and you in the face, every Sunday morning with the words on the screen that we start with every week. Jesus' proclamation of a new kingdom come near, and, and that kingdom has come near in him. And says Jesus, it's time to repent and to believe. Now the repentance part, we understand, we've talked about that. It, it's, it's a word that means change. Go in a different direction. The values of the kingdom of God are contrary in every way to the kingdoms of this world. And those who, who would desire to be citizens in God's kingdom, well, those who want to live and to receive the blessings of citizenship in that kingdom, they need to repent. They need to change their thinking about God. And then they need to change their thinking about how to have a relationship with God. And that leads them then to, to change their thinking about themselves. And then that 
will undoubtedly lead to a change in thinking about themselves, ourselves, in relationship to others. Believe in Jesus, that he is the way into that kingdom. And that's, that's what we're seeing playing itself out in Mark. But, Don, can we put that next slide up? Here's, here's my epiphany. In the mind of Jesus, to believe equals to have faith. To have faith equals trust. Believe equals faith equals trust. Put those in any order that you want. In English, we have three separate words, but not in Greek. Believe and faith are the same word. And trust is a variation of the root word. Belief and actions are not separate in the mind of Jesus. So let's say a friend hurts you deeply. Maybe betrays you in a way that is just unimaginable pain. And that friend comes along at some point recognizing what they have done, and they apologize. And they are sincere. And you sense from them that they are truly sorry. Do you have faith that they won't do it again? Do you, do you trust that it's not going to happen again? What's the difference? In, in English, we, we separate those words. <clears throat> Jesus did not. Don, can we uh, <clears throat> run that video? Let me give you an example of what I'm driving at here. Good. <laughs> you want to know, don't you? Okay, so tell me, tell me, what do you think? Does that girl believe that the bungee cord is safe? Not convinced, is she? <laughs> Somehow or another, she believed enough to be attached to the bungee cord. Right? Yeah. yeah. Why wouldn't she jump? <laughs> she's not stupid. She's scared to death. So if she's scared to death, does she really believe that the bungee cord is safe? No. No. no she doesn't. She, well, what would the proof be? What would the proof be that she believes the bungee cord is safe? And you'll be pleased to know that she did about three or four minutes later. <clears throat> she did not die. The bungee cord, in fact, was safe. 
That's my epiphany. <laughs> the light came on. It explains what we are seeing in Mark, I think, over and over and over. When Jesus talks about belief, he's not talking about theology. He's not talking about an intellectual ascent. He's talking about a belief in him that demonstrates faith and trust in him. When he calls people to repent, it is a challenge to believe in him even though they don't know everything about him or necessarily really understand him or can be certain about what's going to happen as a follower of him. To entrust oneself to Jesus activates grace, I think, in surprising ways. Believing in Jesus means tying ourselves to the bungee cord and jumping. That's what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is interested in belief that results in action. Real belief results in action. That's my epiphany. And you're saying, well, pff, duh. Isn't that the heart of the Christian faith? Well, yeah, it is. <clears throat> but how many of us aren't necessarily jumping every day in the beliefs that we have about Jesus? That's when the light came on for me. If a person believes in Jesus' mind, if a person believes, they act on it. If they don't act on it, then they must not really believe, even if they say they believe. What have we seen in Mark? You remember, Jesus delights in those who believe, and he's disappointed in those who don't. The boat in the storm, disciples scared to death. And he says to them, why are you so afraid? Well, because we think we're going to drown. Because this is nuts. Because you're sleeping in the middle of the biggest storm that we've ever been a part of. And you remember the question. After that one, he says, do you still have no faith? Well, I, I, I would think that they had some faith. But according to Jesus, it wasn't faith. It wasn't trust. It wasn't really believing in him. Last week, Jesus only did a few miracles in his hometown of Nazareth because of their lack of faith. You see the connection? There's the order of things. Those who trust in Jesus... Oh, man... And I want to be one of those. Those who trust in Jesus obey what he calls them to do. And doing what he calls them to do positions them to see him do great things. I want to see Jesus do great things. I'm not so keen on doing all the things that he calls me to do. And that's kind of where we're at. I think, as, as, as followers in, in this country um, and, and maybe just followers everywhere in the world. Because those who obey are more concerned about Jesus than themselves. That's why they obey. 
They don't necessarily know what's coming. They don't have all the facts about Jesus. There's a lot of unanswered questions, but they jump. Their hearts are in the right place. They, they just want to do His bidding, and He gets to do whatever He wants in them and through them for His glory. There's the other hang-up. You know, I'm kind of thinking, well, gee, <laughs> I tied, my, I tied the bungee cord to my leg and I jumped. Can I have a little glory? Jesus says, no. No, you can't. I am the Lord. I get glory for every breath that you take. Oh, why do I have so much trouble with that? Okay, so last week I promised to take a, a, a few moments this morning, make some comments on the 12. You remember the sending out of the dynamic duos. Jesus paired them up. He sent them out with no instructions. And they took nothing with them except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money. Wear sandals. Don't take an extra tunic. So at least they weren't naked. We knew that. When they entered a house in a town, they were supposed to stay there if they were welcome and not leave until they left the town. If they were not welcomed, or people did not want to listen to what they had to say, they were to shake the dust off their shoes as a testimony against those who rejected them. What is this? I would suggest to you that it's the original short-term mission trip. Without all of the planning that we normally do, without all the resources and the supplies that we normally take, why did Jesus instruct them to take so little? They were walking in order to give them an opportunity to learn to trust him. In order to trust him. Jesus says, don't take money, don't take food, don't take a bag. Well, well, Lord, where are we going to get our food? Can you imagine? Jesus just looking at him, really? You know, well, you know, we might need some money once in a while to buy this or that. Really? I think, I think it's an opportunity for them to learn to trust. And certainly I, I do think that it was a very culturally appropriate one-time mission for the sake of the 12 to learn firsthand faithfulness of Jesus when they were obedient to the call upon their lives. But in less than three years from that point, he was going to send them into the world. And they needed to believe, to put their faith in, to entrust themselves to Jesus. To believe that he was with them no matter where they went. Jesus' instruction about shaking the dust from their sandals, that's interesting. You kind of have this this sort of thought, well, that's just kind of a petulant thing. You know, I'm, I'm done with you sort of a thing. But... It really was, it was a mercy. It was a merciful action intended to catch the attention of the Jews. It's customary in that day for pious Jews, when they would travel to non-Jewish areas, they would come back home and they would shake the dust off their sandals and their clothing in a ceremonial act that signified that they were cleansing themselves, ridding themselves from the pollution of being in pagan lands. And also, the judgment that they believed that God was going to bring on pagan people. So for the twelve to do that, you see 
how it's, it's, it's kind of powerful. For the 12 to do that, Jesus sent them to the Jews. Jesus didn't send them to pagans. He sent them to Jews. And so you've got these Jewish followers who, when they're rejected and people don't want to hear their message, they shake the dust off their sandals and walk on out of town. And it's something that the Jewish people knew that often happened if the more pious Jews and those who were able to travel went to pagan lands. What is that communicating to them? Suddenly they think, oh, I wonder what that is about. And it's an opportunity or a, or a challenge, if you will, for, for them to think in terms of their own spiritual condition. And I think there are two words of truth, and I'll be quick with this, that come from this story that I think it's important for us to hear. The word urgency, and the other word is distractions, or I've wondered if maybe a better word is excuses. they they kind of two sides of the same coin. The time has come, proclaimed Jesus. Repent. Believe the good news. It was time then, and it is time now. Brothers and sisters, there will come a time when there is no longer time for people to repent. Do we believe that? There'll come a time when there's no longer time for others to repent. So do we live with a sense of urgency that others need to know our Lord Jesus? Now, now don't hear me saying that our salvation or their salvation depends on our efforts. As if it's solely up to us, it is not. Because if, if it did, then Jesus would not have told the twelve to shake off the dust. But his encouragement was to keep on going. Keep on going. Even though you're rejected, even though people ridicule, even though people think you're a religious nut, even though people don't like Jesus, keep on going because there will be those who believe. There will be those who listen. There will be those who are interested. And, and I think we have to remember how easy it is to get distracted from having a sense of urgency. I think our our distractions and our excuses sort of undermine urgency in our lives. We, we live busy lives. And we give ourselves to many good things. But there is a best thing to which we need to give ourselves, and that is giving ourselves in one way or another, at one time or another, in certain ways, small, large, in between, however the Spirit gives us opportunity to let others hear about Jesus. Think with me for a moment. When was the last time you intentionally brought the name of Jesus into a conversation with someone who you weren't sure whether or not they knew Jesus? the last time. Boy, for me, it's been way too long. And I stand here Sunday after Sunday teaching about Jesus. And I tell you how important Jesus is to me. And how 
he really is the, the, the center of my life. To which I might hear the Holy Spirit saying, really, guy? Really, is that true? How many times have you spoken about Jesus to someone in this past week who he didn't know where they stood? There are plenty of reasons. <clears throat> We're busy. We're concerned that we might be misunderstood. We don't know how it'll be received. They might think us weird. Well, welcome to be a follower of Jesus. That's what we signed on for. Jesus' message here to his original followers and to us is do it and trust me. Do it and trust me. Lord Jesus, hear the prayers of our lives to be people who, who want to be more outspoken about you. What a visual that, that Jesus was, was offering his first followers. What a lesson for them and for us. Okay, so those are some thoughts on the, uh, the short-term mission. Let's, let's go to the next slide. We're going to read from Mark 7 this morning. Two parts. We're going to read the first part, and then we're going to pause, and I'll probably have you just sit down for a couple of minutes, give you some context that leads us into the next piece, and away we go. So let's stand together and read this first section. <clears throat> Here we go. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commandments of God and are holding on to human traditions. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Whew. Okay, go ahead and sit for a minute. We're not done. We'll come back. Wow. Do you hear a heart problem there? 
by the end of the second century, there was a compilation of Jewish oral laws. You've probably heard the name Mishnah. It was a collection of interpretations of the law, which essentially spoke to the heart of the Mishnah, which was tradition is a fence around the law. There were traditions in Jesus' day created and taught by the religious leaders that were intended to protect the law and keep God's people from breaking it or encouraging God's people to keep the law. So, good intent there. The problem was that it resulted in some incredible absurdities and really kind of helps us understand where Jesus confronted the authorities in Matthew and told them that they strained at gnats and they swallowed camels because they were constantly building fences and then more fences. So here's what the law says. So we will build a fence that says this is what we ought to do. And then we want to interpret that a little bit more. So we'll build another fence around that so that we know what we need to do when we come to this, which tells us what to do when we were... Do you see where this goes? Fences around fences. An example, in an effort to keep the Sabbath from being broken by someone inadvertently working, there were many fences. I think there are 39 or 40 fences that were, were built for the Sabbath or written for the Sabbath, if you will. For example, ladies, on the Sabbath, you would be forbidden to, to look into a mirror or a shiny pot, your reflection, because you might see a gray hair. And what would you do if you saw that gray hair? Yes, and that would be work. You are condemned. Do not pluck gray hairs on the Sabbath. There, there, were, there were many of those kinds of things recorded in the Mishnah. What, but what seemed to be the predominant concern by the time Jesus came on the scene was the idea of, of cleanness and ritual washings. Seems to, as best we can tell, have its origin in Exodus where the requirement of the priests was to wash their hands as they perform their duties. But there's evidence in the ancient literature that as early as 200 years before Jesus, those Jews who were, were devout and, and very pious, they expected to wash their hands on a daily basis around a whole lot of different things. And they expected others to do the same. There was a whole lot of washing being done, one commentator says. Not only of the hands, but of kitchen utensils. There is a portion in the Mishnah that's devoted to 35 pages of things that need to be washed and how they need to be washed. And of course, Jesus' whole point in his harsh words to the religious leaders is that being clean is a matter of one's heart. And unless the heart is right, you can create and keep a thousand laws or fences related to washing, and it will earn you no standing with God. There are stories told from that day of, of a rabbi who was, who was excommunicated from his synagogue because he didn't wash his hands before eating. Story is told of another who was imprisoned for some reason under the Romans, and he nearly died because he used his small ration of drinking water to make himself ritually clean every day in prison. According to one 
writer that I read, in Jesus' day, the scriptural teachings about ritual purity had been so fenced and refenced that the concept of true inner purity had been trivialized to a system of external washings. So you see the problem, right? Of course there's going to be a collision. There's a huge collision between the religious authorities and Jesus. He's the one who came to preach and to, to bring true righteousness. Okay, got it? So let's stand and read the last part of our text. <clears throat> Here we go. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house, did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. My sisters and brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Woo! Amen. All right. Once again, once again we are confronted with a lesson for those who were the original followers of Jesus and for all of us who have been following him for in the last centuries. So, followers of Jesus, given what you have heard about the purity laws and the problem of the heart, and Jesus' perspective on, on what was going on among the religious authorities and, and the more devout Jews and, and the burdens that they were placing on people, here's, here's a question for you with just a little snippet of what we just read. The woman was a Greek. Born in Syrian Phoenicia, she begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. What is the significance of this detailed description of the woman? Ask your neighbor what they think. Why does Mark record this for us? Apart from the fact that it's inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we, we, that, one, that one doesn't count, okay? We know that. What's going on? What's going on? Ask your neighbor. Okay. What do we think? Why this record? Why this detail? She's clearly a Gentile. Sure. Yeah, this, this one seems to be showing up for the first time. She's obviously a Gentile. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Absolutely. Doug, what are you going to say? Yeah. And, and, and what on earth did she know about Jesus? I mean, she'd heard of him. Maybe, maybe she'd been one of the followers. Maybe she'd been part of the crowd at some point. But I guess that's the irony to me in this, this whole chapter, actually, through, throughout Mark, is, you know, Jesus sends his followers out two by two, and they're to go out and teach, and he gives them authority to cast out evil spirits. Well, well what are they going to teach? 
What do they know? They're going to teach about their experience with Jesus. Oh, now there's an idea that we would talk to people about our experience of Christ. We, we don't even know what, what this woman's experience was. But I think I can tell you pretty sure a part of the story is what's not recorded, and that's what the disciples are thinking at this point. First of all, something like, oh my gosh, really? Tyre? Why are we going here? You know, this is not the region of the Gerasenes, but, but it's right up there with a list of places that respectable Jews would not want to go. This is Gentile territory. Come on, Jesus, really? You've got to love Mark's description. Syrophoenician woman. Read non-Jew in caps. In Matthew's Gospel, he adds that she was a Canaanite woman. Now that means she was descended of the ancient race that Israel had attempted to, to wipe out. She's also a Greek, which means that she's probably Hellenized by the Greek culture, speaks the Greek language, which means that she probably herds pigs or knows somebody who does and eats the filthy things. She was a Greek-speaking pagan Gentile of Canaanite descent from the region of Tyre. He was not eligible dating material for any of the disciples. And that would be an understatement. We don't know how much of this would have been apparent to the disciples. Enough of it to know that they wanted Jesus to send her away. Matthew records that for us in his gospel. They, they encouraged Jesus to, to send her away. Mark reminds us that her kind of people were so despised by the Jews, considered so unclean, they couldn't wash enough, according to the Jews. They were often referred to as dogs. And she's got a demon-possessed kid. Well, of course she does. What would we expect from someone like this? Marcus told us, you remember that when the disciples went out two by two, I mentioned they were given authority to cast out demons. Do you think any of them stepped forward and volunteered? Oh, Jesus, I can handle this one. I got this. No way. Did I mention that this lesson is for followers of Jesus? Do you know any dogs in your life? You'd never say that. Certainly we wouldn't admit that. But there are probably some dogs in our lives. People who, just the thought of them disgusts us. People whose beliefs Actions, life choices, they make us wish that Jesus would send them away. But he won't. He won't because grace abounds. And wouldn't you know that when those dogs express any kind of genuine interest in him, and it doesn't have to be much, he doesn't seem to hesitate to offer them the same grace that was offered to you and to me. So, 
I'm guessing too, that the disciples thought, yes, when Jesus said, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But it was a short-lived celebration. Because she replied that even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And Jesus loved that response. Brennan Manning once wrote, The splendor of a human heart that trusts and is loved unconditionally gives God more pleasure than Westminster Cathedral, the Sistine Chapel, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, Van Gogh's Sunflowers, the sight of 10,000 butterflies in flight, or the scent of a million orchids in bloom. Trust, jumping off, trust is our gift back to God. It's our gift to Him. And Manning says, he finds it so enchanting that Jesus died for love of it. Here's the thing. I am one, and there are other parties who don't feel this way. I think Jesus said what he said to this woman with a twinkle in his eye. He knew that he had come to bring salvation first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. That's, that's why Paul says in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God into salvation, first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. It's, just, it's, it's, a, it's a priority order. Someone had to hear it first. So why not those to whom God first revealed himself? I think Jesus is delighted with this woman's response. And I tend to think that she is close enough to see the twinkle or the wink in his eye. This is one of those places where God opens a portal in heaven and he gathers all the heavenly hosts around and says, watch this, you're going to love it. Because the disciples are thinking, yeah. But they haven't gotten close enough to this woman to see Jesus' face or the look in his eye. He infers that the woman and her daughter are dogs, which is exactly what the disciples were thinking. And how does she respond? Well, first, Mark tells us that she'd already fallen at his feet. She'd already fallen at his feet. How many times do I fall at the feet of Jesus? Yet this dog of a woman falls at the feet of Jesus. What does he perceive in her but but this, this humble heart, this desperate person? And what does she say in response? Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. But even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Yes, Lord. Such respect. Now, did she know that he was the Lord of glory? Did she know Colossians chapter 1? No, it hadn't been written yet. You know, she's face to face with the creator of the universe. She doesn't know that. But her heart expresses respect related to what she knows. And she knows that this is someone that I need. This is someone that my daughter needs. She doesn't 
know that much about Jesus, but she's heard of him. Decides that he's the only hope for her daughter. And it's interesting, she doesn't take issue with her being put in that category of dog. Well, wait, wait, Jesus. You know, I've heard you Jews talk about us that way, but, you know, I've, I've got some good qualities. No. No, in her need and in her respect, she just stays right where she is. And Jesus responds. He tells her to go home. The demon has left her daughter. And there's, there's no record of her questioning him. Well, are you sure, Jesus? Could you, could you give me some assurance? She goes. So, so what's the lesson here? It's this. Grace shows up in the darndest of places. And it often shows up in places where, if we're honest, we'd rather not see it show up. But that's who Jesus is. That's who our God is. He is someone who I believe is delighted when belief in him is faith and is trust no matter what? A lesson for first century followers, a lesson for 21st century followers, that we might be a people who anticipate that God is at work and we don't know where. And we don't necessarily recognize that we can't look into a crowd and say, oh, he's working in them, but he's not working in them. We are simply called to engage others about the one who we know as Savior. May he give us the strength and the boldness to, to venture in to unknown places and unknown conversations confident that the bungee cord won't break. Amen. Let's pray. Praise team, come on up. God, let us be people who get past ourselves and all the concerns that our human hearts have, all the concerns that, that our ego struggles with, whether we are not enough or whether we are better than or however that might play itself out in our lives. Let us be people who, like this woman, we fall on our faces before you and we recognize you as Lord and we know that you have all that we need and you have all that others need as well. Let us live into that for your glory the praise of your name. Amen. By the way, does anybody know what happens this Wednesday? What's, what starts? What season? Lent. Lent starts with Ash Wednesday. And we just happen to have an Ash Wednesday service here every year. 7 o'clock, right here in this place. You can come. You could bring your kids. It lasts about an hour. For the littlest ones, they might get kind of antsy. But for the older ones, it is a great way to start the season of Lent, to focus upon our...
Savior. So I want to invite you. Come Wednesday night, if at all possible, come and join us. So, take a hand. Put it on your heart. Lord Jesus, we have just sung that we believe there is no life apart from you. And we ask, Holy Spirit of God, that you would live in us, empower us, bring that to life in us. Every breath, every thought, every word, every action, it belongs to you as followers of Jesus. Let us be used by you to call attention to you, to bring glory to you, to make your name known. And let us be people who really don't give a hoot about what others might think of us in that process, we pray. Amen. Amen. Blessings on you, brothers and sisters.